0: You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational
1: pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Kutz. All right, friends. Hey, this is a rare treat because uh, once in a while, and I'll just say this, not often enough, but once in a while, I get to have a husband and wife join me on the show And I love that because uh, I don't care where you are in leadership, particularly if you're married, it profoundly impacts both of you. And today I'm joined by Amber and John Carroll. And there's several things about them that are really interesting. Uh, One is that they're co-pastors. They're both primary leaders. They also, we'll get into this, they also have exactly the same Enneagram type, three wing two. So man, what's that like? So we'll get into that. Not just pastoring, though. John works for Dallas Willard Ministries. He just recently, I think last year, John, or the year before, launched the School of Kingdom Living. Yep. Uh, and when John and I chatted offline before we recorded, he just has a really interesting background in in working for people who are fascinated with integrating soul and emotional and spiritual health. So, of course, you know, that's like throwing me in the briar patch. But <laughs> then Amber, Amber's the executive director of the Brevard Homeless Coalition, which is like many homeless coalitions. Dedicated to eliminating homelessness in, in their county. That's another uh, area of passion in my life. As many of you know, I wrote my graduate thesis on what the suburban church can do for systemic poverty. So we're going to run out of time. There's so much we can talk about. But John and Amber, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you. Yeah,
1: thank you, Steve. It's good to be yeah. here. Let's get into the Enneagram. I'm not an Enneagram guru, I'm a great appreciator of it. I've benefited from it, but I don't teach it, I don't feel equipped. But I am intrigued. Uh, Talk to us about your Enneagram numbers and how that relates to your leadership and your marriage.
0: Well, I would say that your reaction uh, is pretty much what we experience on the norm. Anybody who's familiar with the Enneagram, they say, oh my gosh, two threes with a two wing? What's it like? And I always respond like, it's probably the most tortured Enneagram number, I believe. And then I just feel bad for our kids. (laughs) Most (laughs) of the time. (laughs) It takes a lot of work to not um, be a three all the time.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I, I know the, the, the three is typically characterized as the achiever, but then the three with the two wing is uh, labeled as the performer. And so that can be a bit of a double-edged sword. I mean, we've experienced a lot of success as uh, three twos uh, working uh, together. We've worked in ministry, kind of alongside each other, uh, and and also from from a distance, uh, like under this at the same church. It's been an interesting uh, sort of a dynamic. There's kind of this odd juxtaposition of productive and destructive that we've experienced as being three twos, um, you know, being married, and then working together closely.
1: Because you guys are the same Enneagram number, the same kind of wiring and orientation, What's the line between being helpful to each other and being obnoxious to each other when you notice each other's unhealth? That's got to be a fine line.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I see it played out on um, like on a Saturday when I, so like our, like, like in the back of our mind as a three to like, if it's not working, try harder. Yeah. Are trying hard all the time, but we have our own different ways of, you know, living that out. So on a Saturday, I'll just be ready to just like, you know, lay out on the couch, but he's got, a list of things to do in the house. And so as I'm laying out recovering, I'm going, Oh, I should be doing something. So there's this like internal drive to like do as he's doing rather than just saying, I think I need to rest today and he's just going to have to deal with it.
2: Yeah. And so it is hard for me to set things down. I think that's part of the, the, uh, destructive part of, you know, the, the three, two, uh, that I experience because uh, I am just wired to, to get things done. And usually, like all of the things around the house get stored up for the weekend. And as pastors, I mean, Sundays are very much a church day. And yeah. so Saturday is really the only day that I can get things done. So we'll wake up and we'll have a couple cups of coffee and we're, you know, kind of talking about life and the kids and how, you know, just different things that that we're going through. And then Amber can see it in my face, like about 945, <laughs> 10 o'clock, she's like, you're dying to get out of here, aren't you? I'm like, yes, I like, I've got things to do. Yeah. And, and so it's really hard as a three two to just rest. I think like the, the soul training exercise or the spiritual practice that's most difficult for me and maybe for you as well, but um, certainly for me would be Sabbath. Um, yeah. Just trusting that God will take care of all the little details while I rest and let my soul recover from the week that was yeah
1: yeah you you guys have a a fascinating story about winding up on the therapist couch you know just your own anxiety tell us about what led to that and and uh what came out of it
2: oh wow yeah it's kind of a uh there's a little bit of a backdrop to uh how we got there because i think there were some experiences that kind of led to that and it it kind of involves how we got into full-time ministry
0: well, we were, we were just at this place. We, um, we had done some real radical, uh, changes in our, in our life and our family lives and our personal professional lives. And in order to answer both of our calls to ministry and we were doing community living. Uh, so there was a family of five and our family of four under one roof, living together, practicing acts to community. And, um, it was fascinating, incredible journey. Um, but the, uh, the anxiety and the stress of living with another family, sharing parental responsibilities, the financial implications of it was a lot, and um,
2: and and, yeah. and and so with with it, with anxiety, um, like I would, I would be okay for a while, and then there would be a moment where I'd just kind of explode. I mean, not in a violent way, but just like emotions, strong emotions uh, around a certain situation. And in uh, one night, we just needed to kind of get out of the house when we were doing community living. And so we ran uh, to the store and we did a couple errands. And then at, on our way back, Amber was driving and she pulls into this parking lot where this playground was in our subdivision. And I'm thinking, what are you doing? And she says, I need to talk to you about something and you're going to be upset. And, and And I don't want you to freak out too soon. And immediately in my mind, I'm like, "Oh my gosh, she's having an affair!" Like, you know, like I mean, she's uh, confessing. This is good. At least, you know, she's the one that told me about it. Like, it's going to be okay. Like, like in a matter of seconds, Steve. Like, I had already kind of figured it out in my mind how we were going to work our way through this. That the marriage isn't over. And then she says. I made an appointment for us to go see a counselor and I'm like, Oh, thank goodness. It wasn't an affair. And I'm like, I'll do whatever you want. You know, i was so relieved that it wasn't uh, that, that I, I'm, I'm like, yeah, let's go. Uh, I think, I think this is a good thing. And, and so that, that was what we, um, that's what kind of led us into counseling it was really what we discovered. That was really helpful.
0: Yeah. Well, I made the appointment, um, without telling him. And I had the initial appointment with the, with the counselor and kind of shared our situation. And I said, my husband really needs to come in and talk about his anxiety and how that's displayed in our, in our family, in our home, and also potentially in our ministry together. And so get John, we had that moment in the car and then we end up in the, in the counselor's office. And I was so excited. Like he's talking to John. I'm like, yes, like he's going to Work on him, it's gonna be great. And then and then he turns to me and he says, So let's talk about you. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Which is a wonderful moment for me. Yeah. I am like You have problems too. And I was
0: like, <laughs> wait a second. Like, um no, we are here for him. Clearly he's the one that has the problems. And he was like, Yeah, so it's also you have a, a role in this too. And so it was it was huge for us. I mean, it was the first time that we had this. You know, unbiased, educated, brilliant man who God sent to us um, to really help us kind of see how we both function under anxiety and how it displays so differently, but we both carry it.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. it's fascinating. I first went into therapy um, before I got married. Uh, my my wife and I just had a, a, a bumpy. Engagement. We had like smooth dating, bumpy engagement, and it was all anxiety. It wasn't conflict. It was just like, holy smokes, we're about to jump off a cliff. Yeah. And um, what was interesting, it kind of is what you're saying, Amber. That was the, I mean, I was young. I was 24. First time in my life, someone has accused me of being anxious. Mm. And it was like one of those blind spot knowledge moments where as soon as he said it, I knew it was true, but I'd never considered it before I heard it. So now I'm faced. In front of him, like I, as because I'm also an Enneagram three, so now I'm like exposed, he's seen something in me I couldn't manage, you know. It was a wild moment, and then it, of course, after that it was wonderfully freeing. But that first initial affront is terrifying for a three, I think.
2: Yeah, 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 because we're definitely image conscious, and and so there's definitely a, some vulnerability there. Um, one of the real great things that our counselor helped us with was really um, like with me and how I experience anxiety. And he traced it back to my thought life. He said, you know, your thoughts, uh, you know, you're thinking about things and they, they tend to lead to feelings and how you really feel about the situation. And then that's when it leads to behaviors. And so it's like thoughts, feelings, behaviors. And he said, if you can catch things in the thought stage, then they don't typically brew in the feeling stage and then manifest in the
1: behavior stage. And that was a real breakthrough for me. That's fascinating because I I think as a three, from my understanding, I think I take in the world through my feelings and repress them with thinking. So your your counselor was suggesting the opposite path and maybe it doesn't matter, but what's your take now? Because that was a while ago about the idea of, like, I think my problem as a three is I don't always know how I feel. And I think it's because I repress my feelings with intellect or or logic. What's your both of your take on that? Well, I mean,
2: I I definitely am a feeler. Um, And and if you were a parishioner at my church, you know, you would be the first to affirm that. I mean, I I definitely am emotional in how um, I relate. But uh, in terms of my anxiety, a lot of it starts in my head um it's the story that i tell myself of that what's going on and because i am so image conscious um you know i'm always wondering like what are people thinking about me and so there's definitely sort of a, a circling of my thought life that uh, where the anxiety begins
0: yeah and i would I would say as I, I don't know where, um, expectations fall in that, but my perceived expectations of a situation of how I should be, how I exist in that relationship or in that room or that space. So it probably starts in my thinking is my assumption of what people are going to expect of me, expect out of me that, um, for me creates the, the anxiety.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's really helpful. Yeah. Uh, one of the themes on the show we've been kicking around is criticism. The inner critic, you know, John, you mentioned the story you tell yourself. Yeah, But also, you know, I think for faith leaders, 2020 just really heightened the challenge of external criticism. What, one of my theories I'm working on is because people attend a church, they then think they know how to lead a church. Yeah. You know, you kind of get, because church is such a big part of your life, you start to believe that without any training or experience, you actually would know how to do it better. So talk to us about when your spouse is criticized, you guys are both co-pastors. Mm-hmm. So I'm not so much talking in your separate leadership roles, but when you are co-pastoring together, what is it like for each of you when your spouse is hit with criticism?
0: Oh, I think it's fascinating. I'm, I'm interested how you'll answer this. You are. I am, because <laughs> here I don't, know, I don't know what kind of insight this is going to give you into my soul. But um, when John is criticized... I, in my head think, oh, that's good. now he can fix it like, <laughs> oh good. now he can address it and work on it and this is this is great because that's how I receive it. like I want to know what you think about me so that I can perform better yeah. and do better. and I don't I don't think when when I'm criticized, he goes right into like protector mode. yeah, it's I, that I would say oh absolutely that,
2: yeah, I was waiting yeah, that's that's absolutely yeah people start. Attacking Amber um, and and I immediately want to come to her defense and I'm thinking of all the all the good things that she does and it's like why are you pointing out this one bad thing or why are you attacking her for this and so yeah I'm definitely the defender
1: yeah one of the dynamics uh, that we teach in in my community is um, secondhand criticism and it's the criticism that hits the spouse that impacts. Like so, it, sorry, I, let me say it better. It hits the leader and has an impact on the spouse. I think that's yeah. what you just described, John. Yeah. And it, it, what's unique about you guys, you guys are co-pastors, but oftentimes one of the spouses is the leader. And then maybe the husband's at home hearing about it, or maybe it's the wife. And they don't get to be in the arena to fight directly themselves, but they still get an impact. And we're, we're trying to help couples, Process the damage of secondhand criticism. I know for my wife and I, it's been really a challenge for her when she sees me getting hit, but she can't go beat someone up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: For a lot of years, uh, I served in I was I worked in full time ministry before John did, and so I would come home with those stories, and he just it, he would be in the hallways and not be able to look these people in the eye. Right. Um, and then when we started co pastoring together in a space where someone was unfair in the room. I mean, he, he was like, ha ha, 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 my (laughs) space now. (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, I love you too. I thank you for protecting
1: me. Yeah. That is the question, Amber. Like, do you, do you feel loved when John gets mad on your behalf? That feels good to you.
0: Um, I feel loved, but I, in the other side of it is like, I don't, I don't need you to do that. Yeah, Yeah. I can do this. Um, because I also, when I receive, I receive criticism, um, I actually, uh, I don't want to say I enjoy it because nobody does, but as a three, if you have something to criticize, that means I have something to fix. So I want to be excellent. And so I want to hear the criticism so I can respond, which is not, I'm not saying that that is healthy or a perfect way to be, but
1: oh, it's interesting. my reality. Well, and it is a, a follow-up. Well, I've got two questions. Amber, quickly for you, you just mentioned briefly, you were in ministry first, so you'd come home, John would get this secondhand criticism. Did you ever have a situation where you then go back and resolve it and you forget to update John? So he's left like, aren't we supposed to still not like this person? But you've gone further. Tell us about that.
0: Oh, man, I don't know. I think we've so we've had coffee, two cups of coffee every morning for 20 years of marriage. Um, I, I'm pretty sure that he hears all the resolutions. Yeah. I mean, that's one of our greatest, uh, gifts in our marriage is that dedicated time together. So we really do kind of follow up. Although I think I'm quicker. I, I forgive those, uh, against me easier than he does.
2: Yeah. Like I'm still kind of holding on to the way that she was treated uh, a little bit, but I'm getting better.
0: Yeah, and I would say vice versa. When you've been mistreated, I also.
2: Yeah, um, yeah. I typically make excuses for the other person, be like, "No, it's okay. We smoothed it out. It'll be fine." And yeah. you know, don't be mad anymore.
1: <laughs> yeah, one of the one of the things we're also working on in our community is is how to tell the difference between a usual suspect critic, which is really a bully, versus yeah. somebody who actually has, like, what you said, Amber, like, I I am the leader I am today, largely because of really helpful critics. You know, like people who care about me and our church, who pull me aside and say, hey, man, there's this thing that's a problem. But it doesn't sting. I mean, all criticism stings a little bit, but really it's a gift. But then there's those people that no matter what you do, no matter how many times you meet with them, uh, all you're doing is, is weaponizing. You're giving them more content for them to beat you up with. Mm-hmm. How do you guys discern the difference between those two types of people?
0: Well, I I can say I have a you know I've, I have a beautiful example of a, a friend who we're still in ministry with today, and she pulled me aside and said, "I have to share something with you. This is going to sting, but I think you need to hear it." And it changed my ministry, um, and she stuck with me. You know, like uh, Brene Brown. You know, um, in her book, I forget which one it is, Dare to Lead. Maybe I, I don't know. But she talks about. Um, getting into the arena, if you're getting get in there and get dirty with me, and we're in it together, you can criticize me, you can give me feedback. But if you're just going to sit in the stands and throw all these hurl all the insults at me and tell me I'm not doing it right, I don't have time. But I think I that's probably one of my leadership downfalls is that I allow because I keep trying, if it's not working, try harder. So I will allow those critics, I think maybe just as a test. But I think I, I allow it to go on too long.
2: Now that's really good. Um, I would probably say that, you know, if, if somebody is genuinely trying to help me, you know, and they're speaking with a gentleness, and I can I can see their motives uh, clearly, then then I can receive it. Um, I think you know also timing is good too, you know, to make sure that we're in a space where we can talk it through, and it's not just sort of a like the seagull sort of a feedback where you just drop in and you know plop something on somebody and then fly away and and so but i I do think that even with um, unfair criticism um like the person s- sitting in the stands hurling things, I think the Enneagram has really helped me uh, with that because not only has it uh, increased my self awareness but it's also helped me make uh, helped me become um, more others aware and and so when people are behaving a certain way, you know I think about well, how are they wired? And uh, and and I take into consideration their family upbringing, and it's like, well, I do know that man, they just had a really rough home life growing up, and so this is how they operate, and it's helped me have this grace or mercy for people in those situations, and that's kind of helped temper my sort of my defensiveness.
1: Yeah, that's really good. I fe- I feel like I've had to learn the hard way. I, I try to measure it through if somebody is um, accusing me of bad motives and I show them that they're really not, but they continue to believe themselves over the, over me, or if I'm mediating an issue between another staff member and somebody, that's what I'm watching for is like, if you can't believe the good intent of a good person, I'm going to be, I'm now going to move into a more protective phase. Mm. Even if your criticism might be technically right. I think the other thing I'm looking for is, are you twisting reality? Yeah, not that I have reality and you don't have reality. That's pretty arrogant. But the idea that there is actually an objective set of facts that the majority of us agree on—you're in the minority saying that no, it's actually this way—and you're not moving toward the light. Because what I found in in most pastors I talk to, no matter the size of your organization or your congregation, the number of those people are usually single digits. It's it's yeah. less than ten.
2: Yeah. And they
1: take up so much real estate in your brain. Do. So I was just curious with you guys, yeah, how that is for you.
2: I think also uh, just getting into the practice of assuming the best in people yeah. is really helpful uh, to maybe um, just dissipate some of those emotions on the front end. And and so giving people the benefit of the doubt has been really helpful, I think, for both of us.
0: Yeah. One of the things I think Craig Rochelle said um, in his leadership podcast or one of the values of his organization is that, They say trust is given, uh, mistrust is earned. Mm. And so I think um, when we we talk about bullies, I can think, you know, you say bully, I can think of like three people right now who I believe absolutely were bullies Um, and they earned my, my mistrust. So starting with the, you know, the benefit of the doubt, assuming the good in the other person until they prove me wrong.
1: Oh, that's, yeah, that's a really great word. All right, let, let's pivot a little bit. You guys both have fairly intensive leadership pressure. Like John, you're building something or you have built something from scratch. Amber, you're tackling a systemic long-term problem. So John, the the, the School of Kingdom Living, I think it's called, is that right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and then Amber, like eliminating homelessness or at least massively reducing it. Yeah. What are your best techniques to stop working? You know what I mean? Like if you both have... Unending jobs. What are your best techniques to come home and make sure you're unplugging and resting?
0: Well, I think intentionality. That's one of your words, John. Yeah, I found uh, a planner. So I'm a, I'm, you know, I'm a. i am I like to get things done, but I, le- I really do have to be intentional about how I'm going to structure my time and planning in those chunks of play and rest and Sabbath and keeping in touch with important relationships i think for me it ha- it has to be planned or it won't happen
2: okay and i think for me like the intentionality is is a good word um but just like really drawing boundaries um you know the henry cloud book called boundaries was very helpful and so if i i know that there's going to be a time when i need to set things down then i need to make sure that i've got that marked I have a a great spiritual director who helped me with that. Uh, And and so we talked about Sabbath because for me, Sabbathing is really, really hard as as we unveiled in the beginning of the conversation. But he he said, you know, sometimes I go in my backyard and I see that there are a lot of weeds in my uh, flower garden or my vegetable garden. And I know we need to pick the weeds. It's kind of my day off. And so he said, I'll just start to pick weeds. And maybe after 15 minutes, I'm like, well, I don't feel like doing this anymore. And so I just stopped. And so he basically was helping me identify what I perceive as work and what I perceive as just activity around the home that I enjoy doing uh, over the weekends. And he said, if it feels like work, stop. We intentionally put that in our calendar. Five o'clock on Fridays, we had it in our in our phone calendar. It says, if it feels like work, stop. And, and the word Sabbath was in all caps. And we had that in our calendar Uh, from five o'clock on Friday until five o'clock on Saturday. And that was really, really helpful. Uh, It's a reminder for us to set things down.
0: You know, I also, this pandemic has brought out some beautiful things and some really difficult, obviously, um, habits and patterns of people. Um, And one thing that's just consistent no matter where you're leading is that leader, the expectation of leaders is to just be all in and the phone and being accessible to people is um, people take advantage of that if you're not careful. And so just having that real kind of unwavering boundary, like I put a do not disturb on my phone where I don't receive calls or text after a certain time. And I know my job description says available 24 hours a day, but The truth is, uh, that's not an option. That's a non-negotiable. And so really like putting some boundaries on my phone so I can be available to my my family and my God, (laughs) myself.
1: Um, Okay, so Amber, you're the executive director of a homeless coalition. Mm -hmm. We're talking about a rather complex systemic issue, you know, and I, I think the suburban church is catching up on the complexity of social structures. I think, you know, in the 80s and maybe even into the 90s, most of us were had a more individualistic mindset about poverty. And uh, e- even the early works, like I remember reading Ron Sider. I think he wrote in the 1970s about systemic poverty. I think I didn't read that till the 90s. My very convoluted question is getting around to, what do you see that's working well with church partnerships to actually shift the needle on chronic homelessness. Mm. Uh, because I think we're all trying to move away from charity and get to dignity, reciprocity. Uh, you know, these what I think are more biblical values where everybody has something to offer just because you're homeless doesn't mean like I'm going on a bit long here, but I used to um, lead a homeless ministry in our church in Vegas And all we did was say, you matter and we need you. And we happened to give you a meal and fresh clothes, but it was actually, they signed, they worked in our children's ministry and we just integrated homeless people into the serving of our church. And what they would tell us is we were the first church to not tell them to get in line. Like normally get in line, you know, I've got the soup ladle, which is all the power. You have to beg. And instead we sat around and had breakfast together and did Bible studies together. And we were just trying to, Live out the reality of reciprocity that that I have something to learn from you, you have something to learn from me. I'd love to hear your thoughts on what you see going well with churches working on homelessness.
0: No, that's really good. Um, I think um, that the what you said there that um, I, di- I didn't write it down, but you 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 matter and we need you. Is that what is that what you said? That idea, Essentially, yeah. that, that idea that every person is worthy, um, that we are all uh, image bearers of Christ. And I think that the church has great intentions. I think that oftentimes the church believes that they have all the answers for what um, is needed and don't often partner, don't think kingdom minded, think of their own kingdom rather than the kingdom of God. And that. Um, God is active in nonprofit agencies and for-profit uh, organizations and um, people within the community. So for churches not to try to continue to do their own thing and create their own ministry and their their own brilliant idea that came up at, you know, a administrative council meeting, but to really think bigger picture, to open up their hands, to open up like their resources and um, really partner with, the, the community at large and to fill the gap. I think that's, that's our role. Like what's already being done. And then let's fill the gap. We don't need another food pantry if there's four down the street. So having that real collaborative mindset and kingdom mindset for how we can use our resources, because what looks, it just looks different in every community based on how God is moving in each, each person in each place.
1: Yeah. Oh, thanks for that. I'm I'm going to indulge a hopefully what's a brief rant, because this is scratching the itch on what my grad thesis was on and what I what we've done at our church. A, a couple of things for those listening: if if you don't think you can make a friendship with a person you're serving, I would really challenge you to question whether you should serve them. I think it's that broad. If you can't see that person as a human that might be a friend, like if you literally can't imagine going to a movie with them you know, when we were doing our reciprocity ministry in Vegas, we went, we just did what friends do. We grabbed meals together. We went to movies together and also tackled the systemic things. And what Amber's saying, uh, this has been a pet peeve of mine for, for some time, well-meaning churches that really love the the good feeling of helping somebody. But what if we started thinking about, well, what if a homeless person got that good feeling? Like, why do we get that good feeling? So, putting more of your effort into helping someone serve than serving them is a radical, and I think a biblical idea. And I just want to hit the hammer on the nail that Amber said that in every city I've been a part of, there's always a group of goodwilled people in and out of the church that meet on a regular basis to talk about these and try to move the needle on these issues. And it confuses those good people when a church shows up and starts something yeah. without knocking on their door first.
0: It so does.
1: Yeah. So, you know, when I moved to Broomfield in 2005, the first thing we did was find the social worker gathering and ask if we could come. And we did exactly what Amber said. We just said, look, we don't want to start anything. We just want to find the gaps that we can do that you'd like us to do. And, and we're now 15 years in on, a, on not just a partnership, with, but a deep friendship with some amazing people uh, that otherwise would not give church a shot, but but they see what we're doing. So I guess that's the end of my rant there. I, yeah. I know, Amber, we could, we could have a whole conversation on systemic poverty and societal structures and what the scripture has to say about, you know, moving from an individualistic mindset to a, a community one. But John, we're actually going to pivot to you and it is more freakishly related than we might think, but, you know, you've kind of inherited the mantle of, of Dallas Willard's ministry, you talk about a guy that, um, really rejected the individualistic approach to Jesus. Mm -hmm. Talk to us about how you got involved in, in working with Dallas's legacy and what you're doing now. When I was in seminary, uh, some friends invited me to
2: go to a conference in Wichita at Friends University, uh, to see Dallas speak. And, uh, and, and I was really excited to have the opportunity to, uh, to go there and to meet Dallas. Uh, I sat in a workshop that Dallas was leading, and he was just, you know, blowing me away by the things he said. I mean, and if you've read Dallas, you know that he has some pretty you know, deep and complicated sort of definitions and, and concepts uh, related to Christian spiritual formation but, um, but I, I, I was really eager to talk to him about an experience that I had um, while listening to an interview uh, where he was being interviewed. It was a podcast back in 2009, and uh, it was at um, Menlo uh, Church, and John Ortberg was interviewing him, and, and John was fielding questions from the audience and then feeding them to Dallas. And one of the questions that came in was, why is God such a big deal? And if Jesus is a big deal, then how would you advise me to proceed to experience him and Dallas thought about the question for a moment, and he said, well, you know, don't start by trying the big things. He said, instead, start by putting into practice the things that Jesus said, trusting him to be right about it. And then gradually, you'll come to discover what a big deal he is. And when I was listening to that podcast, I was on my way to work when I was working in the corporate world, and I literally pulled my car over to, into a gas station, and I rewound the podcast, and I wrote it down in a journal that I was keeping at the time. And I brought that journal with me uh, to Wichita in 2012 to hear Dallas speak. And that was, or 2011. And I, I told him about that. And, and so we had a really great conversation around it. It was the only time I got to be around Dallas in person. But that really launched my passion for spiritual formation. And I ended up working for the organization that was hosting uh, that conference, the Apprentice Institute at Friends University. And I worked with James Bryan Smith for about six and a half years. And uh, the reason why I got hired was to launch an adult certificate program in spiritual formation. And I led that uh, for the time that I was at Apprentice. And then that unfortunately came to an end uh, due to the pandemic at the end of the spring last year. By the grace of God and by the uh, generosity of Dallas Willard Ministries, uh, they scooped me up really quick. I mean, a a week hadn't gone by when they contacted me and said, uh, we'd like for you to uh, help us launch uh, a similar type of a program because we believe in the work that uh, it was doing in Wichita. And we, we'd like to bring that to other people. And that's how that got started. And so I because I had learned from my many uh, failures <laughs> in, in, in working at Apprentice and as well as a lot of the things that worked well, uh, it allowed me to put the program together very quickly. And we opened up uh, the, the first cohort for the School of Kingdom Living in the fall. And we host our first residency here in a couple of weeks. Oh, that's awesome.
1: One of, the, one of the gongs I've been banging all of 2021 is the, the plea for faith leaders to find a different gear if they want a different experience with God. I, I, think, I think many of us come from a really good place, a good hearted and a selfless place that leads to a neglect of our own soul you know we're so focused on telling others about the grace and love of god i think sometimes we struggle to experience it for ourselves yeah so i've just been really hitting hard for our listeners on, like look you can have a life of enjoyment with god while you're leading people to god it, it's possible but it does take you you know one of the themes of this interview is intentionality mm. it takes real intentionality john i i would love just to have you tell us what are the opportunities that the School of Kingdom Living offer for weary faith leaders who are looking for an encounter with God?
2: The School of Kingdom Living is really designed for anybody who wants to go deeper. We have three anticipated outcomes for uh, the school. So we want you to grow in your relationship with God. Uh, we want you to connect in authentic community with other people. And we also want to equip you with sort of tools to stick in your spiritual tool belt, if you will, that you can bring home to whatever ministry context you're working in. So if you are a pastor or church staff, this is for you. Um, If you are an accountant or a homemaker or a school teacher, this is for you. And so we want to open up the opportunities for people to really grow and learn. And the program, uh, it lasts 18 months. And we have four week-long residencies over the 18 months. And so we'll come together as a cohort and we study specific things. So uh, we'll, we'll talk about how to cultivate and deepen uh, an interactive and conversational relationship with God. We'll also explore how uh, the kingdom is not a, a, a reality that you experience after you die, but it is present and it is here and now. And that's a power that you can um, have in this life and then we also talk about character formation into Christ-likeness and what the process is for that. And then we'll also talk about the role of spiritual discipline, spiritual practices uh, in our life and and how you know we can experience those in our everyday life. That's really what we focus on.
1: I, I know so many people have been so profoundly impacted by Dallas's writing and speaking. So, you know, this incredible opportunity, folks, to to engage that, that resource, you know, obviously Dallas has passed on, but what John is doing is offering that path. So John, how would people find you to get more of this information? Uh, they can go to our website. It's simply dwillard.org. And right
2: there on the front page is uh, an image for the school of kingdom living. They can click on that and it will take you to our program description and talks a little bit about our curriculum and uh, the dates for our cohort. So our first cohort is formed and we're getting ready to meet. Um, but actually just next week, we're going to be opening up applications for cohort two, which begins in February of next year. So uh, it would be a really good time for your audience to come and check us out. And if they'd like to apply, they can do it right there on the website and the applications come directly to me.
1: Excellent. And folks, we'll have that link in the show notes too. So if you're driving and you heard that, you can go back to the show notes and click it. And uh, John, I just think this this just lines up with, with our call for people to be intentional. You know, sometimes I'm, this, I'm on this side of the mic where I'm interviewing people. Sometimes I'm on the other side of the mic where I'm the guest making the plea for people to take care of their soul. And it always chagrins me a little bit. It kind of sticks in my craw that some of the podcast hosts I talk to, they want like, just boil it down for us, Steve. What are the three quick steps? And I'm like, there are there's no such thing. What what I think you're appealing to is the long, slow shift, intentional, take time. I know my listeners know that that in January I launched a community called Capable Life. That's also gonna be in the show notes. www.capablelife.me It's got the same uh, destination. It just goes through a different window to get into the same room, if you will. And as as I've been saying really since I launched that community, I'm not making the case that the community I've built is the one you should do. I'm just making the case, do something. Yeah, Like what John has offered, John's worked really hard to integrate an experience where you can actually encounter the love and freedom and peace of Christ. That's what I've tried to do as well. People like Pete Scazzaro have done amazing work in that area. Yeah. Uh, my dear friends, Jim Harrington and Trisha Taylor over the leader's journey. So th- this is not a, a space of of competition. I'll I'll be real frank, John. I, I've currently got a WordPress coach that's helping me build my community because I don't know about web development. And and one of her questions was, tell me about your competition. And I and I know what she means. She's in business. And I said, well they're all friends. Like we're all we're all trying to do the same thing. But right. There's um, competition in the kingdom, right? Yeah, right. And we're all just trying to help you experience the grace of god you believe in that maybe you struggle to encounter yeah um so john thanks i am really grateful uh that you came on the show and, and shared what you do I fear, I mean, I, I'm afraid that uh, we've run out of things to talk about. Therefore, <laughs> the only thing left is the gauntlet. Uh, so,
0: hey.
1: <laughs> yeah, here we go. I mean, we've, yeah. I, I can see in your eyes the fear. <laughs> um, John has started to try to tunnel out of the room, but here we go. Uh, the gauntlet of anxiety questions that I ask every guest in season six. Amber, let's, let's start with you. Um, I think we all inherit from our family of origin assets and liabilities. And it would be helpful just to hear maybe one asset and one liability that you've inherited from your family of origin in leadership and parenting.
0: Yes. Uh well, I um that's a pretty easy question for me to answer, I think. Um I uh had come my parents were divorced when I was young. I went to two Elementary schools to middle schools to high schools. I lived in a lot of places, um, a lot of houses. I've had step parents, um, moms and dads, and step brothers and sisters, and all that. And so, I think um, I developed a really great. I, I'm very adaptable. Um, I'm used to transition. I worked really hard to thrive in transition and do well, and uh, succeed, have people like me. I mean, when you travel a lot, you you want to make friends and not be lonely. So I think um, one of the gifts in, in experiencing that is my ability to adapt. But the way of uh, adaptation in that is de- the ability to detach emotionally so you can survive loss and change sometimes. And I see that as a gift in those situations. And the other side of that is that um, it's really easy for me to detach which plays into my threeness where if it gets too hard then I'm just done. And so I can see that as the other side of the coin.
1: Yeah, that's great. John, how about for you? Well, um, I have a very
2: I would say it plays into a lot of what we talked about already where um, you know my, my family is very driven, um, you know very dutiful, um, in in a lot of ways, and and so even if it's not something that you know I'd rather be doing, there's a sort of a sense of duty and um, uh, the need to get it done that that plays into it, and that can be a good thing in order to accomplish goals. But it also is you know not helpful when it's a time for me to set things down.
1: I think one of the surefire ways to learn to notice your anxiety is when you don't know what to do, but you have to do something as a leader. Amber, does that, uh, strike anything for you and your role at work? Like the, when's the last time you didn't know what to do, but you had to do something?
0: No. Oh. <laughs> um, well, I think, man, I think, we, you know, we were leading at, I mean, this is the biggest, what I can think of recently was, you know, co-pastoring a church when everything shut down with the pandemic and saying, okay, we got to do something. And, Uh, we got to get everybody digital and online and, you know, just jumped into action. And um, part of the the problem, I think part of the mistake that I I made in that, you know, I just led forward without really making sure everyone was on board. But at the time, no one knew what the heck to do with leading a church through a pandemic. But um, I think that was one of the biggest ones in the recent past.
1: Amber, what goes on under the surface in you when you have to do something when you don't know what to do?
0: On the surface, like feelings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I feel out of control. I like to uh, feel in control. I like to have all the information. So I have a need to, to learn and to gather and to be equipped. I don't like to feel um, out, yeah, out of control.
1: And then John, it's a similar question, but it's kind of a different angle. Would you be willing to tell us about a mistake you made in public recently, and how you recovered from it. <laughs> um, well, I mean, in public,
2: so I, I kind of have two stories, uh, if I can. I'm talk yes. <laughs> <Thank God>. So <laughs> this is great.
0: You didn't tell that, yeah,
2: I know this is great. So this happened a, a few years ago, so it's not super recent, but um, a few years ago, uh, we were doing a baptismal service. Uh, at our church in Kansas, and uh, it was in February, so it was kind of chilly. And we filled the baptismal tank, and 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 even though we warmed the water up, it was still kind of chilly. And so I I do the full immersion baptism, in the water, out of the water, and you know, baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so I'm walking back with him out of the the sanctuary, and I've got my arm around him, and I'm like, man, I'm just so happy for you. And he's like, oh, thank you so much. And I said, uh, yeah, that water was cold and I have to pee. And so we go into the men's room and he's getting changed and I'm doing my thing. And then somebody comes screaming into the men's room and goes, John, your microphone is still on. (laughs) And I was like, I mean, I'm going, I can't believe this. (laughs) And meanwhile, Amber's leading worship in the sanctuary and she's trying to have this holy moment. It
0: was powerful, you know, awesome moment that. (laughs) <laughs> and we could not recover i mean we just could not stop laughing i mean tears I mean, the whole place we just it was awesome
2: and i <laughs> knew i had to go back into that sanctuary and face everyone <laughs> uh, and and we were kind of new at the church at the time we'd only yeah. been there for about a year and so i said well we're all family now yeah. and everybody just <laughs> in laughter and it was really great and they yeah. loved to poke
1: me about that on a oh uh, yeah basis. uh Let me ask a follow-up, John. That's a wonderful story. It's such a human-sized story. Mm -hmm. You know, your ability to go in, self-depreciation. Do you still go home and have a story you tell yourself, or did that that cast it out of you, that kind of shame or that, you know, the inner critic? What was that like for you?
2: Uh, In a way, it was really liberating because it let me off the hook of having to be perfect. And I think as pastors, we sort of, you know, fool ourselves. It's like the self-deception kind of a thing where we have to have all of the answers. We need to be the wisest person in the room, the most mature person in the room and, and have all the right stuff queued up to say that just
1: really let me off the hook. And I was really grateful for the experience. (laughs) that's great. Well, just last question, you know, John says perfect love casts out all fear. So we're fascinated by how our guests encounter love. So, Amber, let's have you go first. When in your life do you feel most fully and completely loved?
0: I think, I mean, aside from when I'm snuggling with my adorable puppies, who are just perfect, I think when I really feel like I'm God's favorite. And I mean, I know he loves you and I know he loves John, but there are days where I'm just like, I just think that I'm God's favorite. And it's in those moments where I just, I feel like I have enough experience of knowing, of hearing my of hearing God's voice and being able to discern it from all the other all the other voices not all the time but in those moments of pain maybe feeling defeated or uh lonely where i experience uh god's presence or his provision and i can and i i, I can identify it in the moment like oh my gosh this is god actually right here where i need him most and didn't even realize it and being able to hear and know his voice you know my sheep hear my voice, I know them and they follow me. And so having experienced that in the past and being able to identify it in those moments. So I I find it mostly, it's the loudest in pain and and disappointment because I think that's where I draw the closest to them.
1: John, how about for you?
2: Yeah, I think that I feel most fully loved when I feel like I can be my most authentic self with other people, you know, to let my guard down, you know, to drop, uh, all of the fakes in the fronts. I mean, that that's really helpful. And, you know, I love what um, this poet named John Mark Green, you know, says about this. He says, let's get soul naked, uh, stripping down to our raw selves, leaving pretense and inhibitions scattered like clothing on the floor. <laughs> I just, yeah. I mean, like when I'm able to just be my most authentic self is when I
1: feel like I'm most, truly love. and and John Carroll, thanks so much for joining me. This has been an absolute delight. Oh, Thank likewise. You. Thank, Thank you, you. Steve. Yes. Yeah, it's a real privilege to be
2: on the show and yeah, blessings to you and the ministry that you're engaged with, uh, both in the church and with this podcast.
1: For more resources, visit stevecuswords.com or missyoualliance.org.